Okay, good morning, good afternoon, whatever you are in the world. We are here again with another episode when we have special guests with us today. I will let uh, our special guest introduce himself after I do a brief presentation to why we are here. Uh, basically, as you know, this is a show to get you as close as possible to understanding culture. Why? Because culture is a force that is always at play in today's global economy, not only global economy, but in our lives, because it is invisible. We don't understand its impact on how we speak, communicate, hear, feel, negotiate, make decisions and uh, find resolutions to conflict. And this show is just about that, to get you as close as possible to do good business, not only to do good business, but also to become a better at uh, creating, making, nourishing uh, relationships uh, with people from all over the world. So welcome to the show. And we will start with introducing our guests. And before I do that, I just want to say that we are taking it a little bit differently today because usually we talked about the impact of cultures, but because we receive a lot of requests on how to immigrate to the United States of America. As you know, the United States of America is still number one country in the world that is still attracting visitors, not only visitors, but immigrants, business people, and everybody is, uh, is coming here for one reason or another. I do work with people from all over the world, and some of them come here just to protect their assets. Some of them come here to escape war. Some of them come here to find peace. Some of them come here to realize their dream and become the best version of themselves. Whatever your reasons are, we are here to assist and we are bringing you the expert on this matter. Some of you will call him Mr. Abdin and here in the United States, we'll call him Yazin. Welcome Yazin to the show. Hi Mona, thank you. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. I will let you do the work and uh, introduce yourself to uh, the audience and tell us about who you are, what you do, and then we'll take it from there. Wonderful. So I am attorney Yazin Abdin, managing partner of Abdin Law. Abdin Law is primarily an immigration law firm that has assisted thousands of individuals, families, business owners, investors all across the world, from Asia to the Middle East, Australia, any place you could think of. We've worked from clients from those regions assisting them with their goals to either migrate permanently to the US or come here on a temporary basis for studies or work or something of the like. Okay, excellent. We are going to get people closer to the method or methodology or the process on how to make the United States of America their home. So we do have several, as I understand, and I will let you do all the talking today, we have several categories. And let's start with the people that we, uh, who we work the most with. Those are people who are trying to invest in the United States, hoping to become residents. What are the programs available for them? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, are we, we, we joke 
in the industry of immigration law and we call it the alphabet soup. And the reason for that is, is there's so many different visas available and each visa has very specific requirements. And so hopefully today we'll go through as many of them as we can, uh, focusing on primarily the investment options. The most common or most uh, well-known one is probably the EB-5. And that is just because it has a, a little bit of a wow factor that goes along with it because the investment amount is so large. So everybody knows this as the purchase your green card visa, as mm -hmm. some call it. It goes by a lot of different names. The EB-5 program stands for employment-based category five. This is a investor visa where you invest approximately $1 million into a US enterprise. And in addition to the investment, the enterprise must create 10 full-time jobs. And this results in a green card for the investor, the investor's spouse and children under the age of 21. So this visa is unique because it's just really two requirements. There's not much to it. You don't have to have certain number of degrees or education or experience. It is all focused on the investment. So uh, there is also no restrictions on this visa as to where you come from. Some visas are specific to certain countries. The EB-5 program is not. It is open to nationals all over the world. And so we see a lot of Middle Eastern individuals use this visa program. And we also see a lot of Asians, especially Chinese individuals using this program. And uh, as of recently, we are also seeing a, a large number of Indian nationals using this visa. So it's, it's one of the, the great options that we have in the US. The one downside to it is it is taking a little bit longer than usual. So for most people, it's about a two and a half to three year wait, mm -hmm. and it could be more depending on your nationality. So for example, China is backlogged because there's such a large number of Chinese investors coming in through this program. They are currently backlogged. And that means that they have to wait more than the average person, more than the average two and a half to three years. Okay, for the two and a half and three years, um, are they now in China or they're already here? Yeah, so unless you can maintain your status lawfully here, then you must wait outside the US. So unless you're here on some other program, let's say you come in as a student, hypothetically, and you are studying and you decide to invest in the EB-5 program while you are here studying. Well, as long as you are studying and maintaining your studies, you can remain inside the US while you're mm -hmm. EB-5 ending. But the condition is that you have to maintain lawful status. In other words, you have to continue your studies or find some other avenue. Um, otherwise, you have to reside outside the United States. You cannot wait the two and a half to three years in here. Got it. Now let's go to, um, this is a million dollar. I don't have a million dollar. What's next? Yes, exactly. So this one is, is uh, usually out of reach for most people. You know, it is such a high amount. So. Another one of the visa options we love here is the E2 visa. The letter E is an elephant and the number two is in husband and wife, two people. Uh, this visa is unique because it is not available to nationals of all countries. For example, from the, uh, from the MENA region, uh, the Middle East and North Africa region, uh, we have only a handful of countries that qualify. One of them is Jordan. Another one is Morocco, okay? So these are two of the countries in the Middle East that qualify for this visa. It is a temporary visa, so it does not result in a green card. However, this visa can be renewed 
indefinitely as long as the business is maintained in the US. There is no limit or set amount for the investment. So earlier we were talking about EB-5 and we said that there is a set number for that one. However, mm -hmm. the does not have a set number. I've worked with uh, business owners that have invested as little as $75,000 mm -hmm. and invested as much as half a million dollars into their business. So really the investment amount comes down to, is it proportional to the business? And the way USCIS looks at it is they use a reverse proportionality test to determine whether or not the investment amount is substantial enough. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as $75,000, um, you said you worked with people who invested as low as 75. Do we have any lower amount on this category of E2 visa? Sure, plausible. Um, if you can find a business or start a business for less than 75,000, of course, the lesser the amount, I would say in my legal opinion, the harder it is to get the visa because the immigration wants to see that you're committed. They want to see that you're taking this seriously. So naturally, the more complex the business is, the larger the investment amount, the larger the capital. This shows a, a uh, you know, uh, so to speak, not more interest, but more of a commitment. Okay. And how long does it take for the approval? So the E2 is fairly quick. If you are outside the US, it really depends on how quick your embassy is out there. You know, different embassies ever since COVID uh, have slowed down substantially and they are moving at fairly slow paces, some much slower than others. Um, but as soon as you can get your interview at the embassy, or if you're doing a change of status in the US, it is fairly quick to do that option. It takes a handful of months usually. Okay, now uh, you mentioned for the first one, you have to be either outside of the United States or have a legal status within the United States while you're waiting for your visa. How does it work for this one? Is it the same way? This is slightly different because this is not a green card option. The first option we were discussing, EB-5, is a green card, permanent residency, whereas the E-2 is temporary. So the E-2, you can do what's called a change of status. So let's say you come here as a student, and you finish your studies or you're getting close to finishing your studies and you decide, you know, I'd like to open a business in the US and test my luck. And so if you are a national of one of the treaty countries and you have a substantial investment, you can go ahead and apply for a change of status. So you can do this without leaving the US. Um, the difference is with the green card option, there needs to be a visa available for you. There needs to be a green card available, which is not always the case, which is why the EB-5 program is backlogged. It's a two and a half to three year wait. However, with the E-2, there is no such backlog because it's a non-immigrant visa. There is no cap and there's always a visa available in this category. Okay. And you had mentioned um, countries with treaties. Uh, and you mentioned Jordan and Morocco, but obviously the world is, is vast. Can you tell us who, who are the other, what are the other countries and people like Claudia here from Germany, what would be available to her? Yes, so actually the E2 is available to almost all of Europe. Um, so all of the European countries have access to the E2. Canada has access to the E2. Australia has access to it. Pretty much all, uh, you know, really a large amount of countries. Pakistan has access to it. It's a long list. We can pull it up online. It's pretty okay. easy. We just Google E2 treaty countries and you get a list of about a hundred uh, plus countries or so. Okay. Now 
I don't have a million. I don't have $75,000. What's next? Right. <laughs> Stay home, right? <laughs> so, again, again, um, so the investment categories are fairly limited. The investment visas, we talked about two of them. There's also a third one called the L1 intra-company transferee. This does not necessarily require you to invest, but the company must invest or have a U.S. branch. So the intra-company transferee, the L1, is basically for companies to move employees around. This was intended to be used by larger companies uh, that have locations all over the world. And sometimes they wanna move one of their employees, let's say from their Indian branch to their US branch. And they can do that through the L1. And the L1, although temporary, can result in a green card, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, attorneys have gotten creative with the L1. So although it was meant for large corporations with branches all over the world. Now we've discovered that we can open up U.S. branches here. So basically how that works is, let's say Mona owns a textile company in Morocco. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very successful company. She's got 10 employees and it's profitable. Now Mona would like to open up a branch in the U.S. Not necessarily the same line of work. It could be something different. So as long as the two companies, the U.S. company and the Moroccan company are tied through ownership, then we can transfer Mona as an executive from the Moroccan branch to the US branch. So it's not necessarily Mona that's making the investment, it is the Moroccan company that is making the investment in the US branch. So you don't have to be the owner of a company to use this option, you can be an executive or manager and the company can make the investment and transfer you to a US location. I see. Okay, I'm processing this because obviously you do this every day, uh, attorney, as this comes naturally, as you are telling us this, we are trying to process it in a way that we can understand it uh, the best way possible and the easiest way possible. So we have EB5, I wrote down here EB5, I have E2, L1. All right, what's next? Yes, so... The next options have to do with your abilities or your degrees, okay? So we have some awesome options. Um, we have a non-immigrant option called H-1B. H-1B is very famous. It is uh, used a lot by Indian nationals. H-1B is a temporary work visa. It requires a minimum of a bachelor's degree. The higher your degree, I would say the higher your chances of obtaining the H-1B because they have uh, set aside a number of visas for those with master degrees and PhDs. And so obviously the higher up you go up in degrees, the more limited the people, the group and category that you're in. And so the better odds of getting the H-1B. The H-1B is considered a lottery because there's about 65,000 visas annually. Mm. And you have usually over 300,000 applicants. And so as you can see, you know, you're applying against a lot of other people. So the way this one works is you register your interest in the H-1B program. And then if you are selected in the lottery, then you can submit your application for the H-1B. You need a U.S. job offer. And typically the job offer should be in a STEM field, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Okay. So if you have a job offer and a bachelor's degree, if you have the job offer and a bachelor's degree, and you are selected for the lottery, then you are an H-1B uh, applicant. So this is another option in the US. So I just have a quick question on this one. 
you have to have that degree and then you have to apply. Um, and then you mentioned the lot. I, do I have to go through a lottery? Does yes. the person has to go through a lottery process or is there exactly. a specific lottery? Because I, I do know that there is lottery available um, to so many countries and they open up windows from one period of time, I guess, October to November, something like that. And people uh, apply, but in within this category, do they have a lottery as well, specific lottery? Mona, I think what you're referring to is the diversity visa lottery. That okay, yeah. Open to everybody. This is simply, this was uh, implemented a long time ago, the diversity visa. And the idea was to bring diversification to the US. So for the diversity visa, the requirements are, are very simple, basically. You know, you don't need to have a certain education or certain uh, degrees or anything like that. It's just based on an application. You submit your application, and if you're selected, you and your family get green cards. You get to come reside in the U.S. So this one is completely random, the one you're thinking of. The H-1B is different. The H-1B is a work visa. It is a temporary work visa tied to bachelor's degree in STEM. And so this one does require a job offer. So it's a different lottery. Yes, they're both lotteries, but this one that we're referring to is different than the diversity visa. And how often do people have to renew it? So the H-1B and I am, I believe it's every, two, don't quote me on this, two, yeah. to three, two or three years. I believe it's good for six years total. And it's renewed on a two or three year basis. Okay, okay. The H-1B can lead to a green card. So we will get into some of those options in a minute here but the H-1B can lead to a green card, although it is a non-immigrant visa. You know, if you're here with an a, on an H-1B status, uh, oftentimes you can, your employer can petition for you for residency in the U.S. Got it. So there's got to be sponsorship from an employer for you to remain legal in the U.S., right? The H-1B is tied to employment. Okay. Exactly. All right, so... Uh, I am keeping up with you here. EB5, E2, L1, H1. Okay, what's next? Let's say I am sitting chilling in uh, Peru and I decide, hey, I want to go to the United States. That's the place where I want to be. <laughs> what do I do? Well, so let's talk about some of the simpler options. Let's talk uh -huh. about some non-immigrant visas. You have the B1, B2 which is probably the most well-known visa. The B1-B2 is for tourism uh, and medical treatment in the U.S. So this is a visa that people apply for on their own, and it allows them to come to the U.S. for a maximum of six months at a time, okay? They can spend six months. Now, you can seek an extension of status. So let's say you come up close to your six months, and because of COVID, the airline cancels your flight. Well, this is actually a scenario that really happened to thousands of people. And so they would file for an extension and you would submit proof that the airline canceled your flight. And so you're seeking an extension till it is safe or uh, until it is available to travel. So this is an option. Uh, people use this one all the time. The bad part about the B1, B2 though, Mona, is it's a discretionary visa. It's highly discretionary. The way the US government looks at it is that no one has the right to visit the United States. It is more of a privilege. And so the officers at the embassy regularly deny this visa. If they suspect that you will come to the U.S. and never return back, they will deny you. 
And so it is the applicant's burden when they go in for this interview to prove to the consular officer that they will return to their home country. How do you do that? Well, you wanna show ties to your home country. Maybe you own a house, maybe you have a job or own a company, maybe you own vehicles, maybe you have children that are enrolled in school. These are all considered ties to your home country. The stronger your ties, the less likely you are to abandon your home country and remain in the US. And so this is one of the big hurdles that people have when applying for visit visas. I see. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. Thank you for taking time to share this uh, with us here today. So on, on these um, B1, B2, while you are in the United States, can you seek internship? Can you work? How does it go? No. So B1, B2, no! Very, very, very. <laughs> Okay, he said no, you cannot work, you cannot, that's the internship. So, okay, so what do we do for six months? <laughs> Take a tour? Well, um, you know, it's intended to be used for vacationing, medical okay. treatment, limited business, keyword being limited, right? So what does limited business look like? Well, it means no money is being exchanged, okay? I so see. you're not working, but let's say you're a doctor and you were invited to a convention in the United States. That is a B1, B2. That is limited business. So attending a convention, a seminar, maybe you have some meetings with business partners, colleagues, this is permissible. But to actually go and work and earn income is not allowed under the B1, B2. That is a big no-no. You're not allowed to intern. You're not allowed to study. But what people will do is they will enter with a B1, B2, and then they'll realize, you know, I like it here. I want to stay longer. I want to explore my options. So at that point, they will look into something like a change of status, where you change from B1, B2 into something else. And you do this internally while you are inside the US. You don't even have to leave. And so a lot of people will come in as a visitor, and then they will decide, you know, UCF looks pretty. I'd like to enroll in some courses. Or, um, you know, Valencia has an awesome English program. I'd like to improve my English while I'm here. And so they submit a request to change their status with the US Immigration Office. And then they can become a student. And now, instead of being limited to six months, once you're a student, you can stay here so long as you are studying, which could be one year, two years, three years, depending on how long your program is that you signed up for. Mm -hmm. So the B1, B2, although directly in and of itself does not allow employment or study, it is a way to get here to the U.S. and then oftentimes uh, allows for other doors to open. I see. This is this is a good. It can be a good program for a lot of people because I've had this situation before where I um, worked with a, a Saudi couple who came on a visa and then they bought a business, and that's how uh, they stayed here for a longer peri period of time. Now, for this particular one, B one, B two, how long does it take to change status? Is it a long process or fairly easy? It's not that it's difficult necessarily. And of course, it depends on what you're changing to, because, you know, the example I used was going from visitor B1, B2 to student. That is fairly straightforward. However, if you were going to go from B1, B2 visitor to a more complex visa, such as the E2 treaty investor visa, then that is a little bit more complex, requires uh, more work, things like that. So you're looking at usually several months of waiting for to hear back from the immigration office on whether or not the change of status has been approved. 
Mm -hmm. And as uh, far as you know, what difficulties usually people face when they're changing from one to another once they gain entry to the United States and they want to do other things besides visiting as a tourist? Uh, do you see any difficulties in doing that or is it fairly easy as long yeah. as you follow a certain process? Yeah, so let's stay with the example we're using, the visit visa, you enter as a visitor and then you change to student. So, you know, when you change to student, the immigration office wants to see that you have still ties to your home country. Again, because a student visa, just like a visitor visa, is non-immigrant, meaning that it is not permanent in nature and you're supposed to return back to your home country. So when you're applying for a change of status, mm -hmm. the USCIS office still wants to see that you have non-immigrant intent. So they want to see that you still have uh, ties to your home country. That could be in the form of a home, a bank account, maybe you left your family behind, et cetera. And so oftentimes when we submit these change of status applications, we submit an affidavit, a statement from the applicant explaining that they want to study here temporarily and that they do intend to return to their home country. We also submit proof of income or proof of savings because the immigration office wants to see how you're going to take care of yourself while you're here because mm -hmm. students are not allowed to work. And so if you're not allowed to work and you're spending thousands of dollars on tuition and you have thousands of dollars in rent and transportation and food, well, where's this money coming from? So the burden is on you to prove that you or someone, friend or family is going to be financially supporting you. So this is usually what the immigration is reviewing during those months when the submission is pending. Okay. Uh, for our viewers, what are the opportunities available right now for people? They can be from anywhere in the world. What are the opportunities available for them to immigrate to the United States? So there is different categories aside from we've basically focused today primarily on investment options and some employment options. As I told you at the beginning, right, the alphabet soup goes on and on. So there's way tons of letters that we can discuss, um, but there are other categories besides investment and employment. For example, uh, there's family-based immigration. So this is oftentimes the easiest way to immigrate to the U.S. Uh, Basically, it just requires you to have certain family members that are U.S. citizens. So there's two categories in this, immediate relatives and preference relatives. Immediate relative categories is where there's no wait. There's always a visa available. So a spouse of a U.S. citizen is considered an immediate relative. Mm -hmm. A child at the age of 21 is considered an immediate relative. So if you're petitioning for those uh, categories of relatives, there's always a visa available and you can immediately adjust your status inside the US. So let's say you came in as a visitor, Mona, and your husband, who's a US citizen, said, Mona, you know, I don't want you to keep going back and forth to Morocco. Just stay here. Let's start our life here. Your husband, as a US citizen, could then petition for you and you don't even need to leave the US. So even though you entered as a visitor, your husband will assist you with an adjustment of status process so that you get your green card. And once you have your green card, your residency, then you're free to travel back and forth. So this is an example of an immediate relative category. Now, the other side that we didn't touch on yet is the preference relatives. And those are categories where there is not a visa available. And the biggest one is brothers and sisters of US citizens. So Mona, you're living here in Florida. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And your sister in Morocco wants to come join you. She's like, you know, you're living the dream. I see you at the beach all the time, having a great time. Done. it's not fair I want to come too 
And so you petition for your sister, Mona. Guess what? It takes about 15 years for her to get her green card. And during that time, she has to wait outside the US, unless, of course, she can maintain her status through other means. So for example, maybe she wants to study for 15 years. As unrealistic as that is, that would be one way to maintain her status if she wanted to be in the US. But as you can see, this category that I just gave you an example of is backlogged. And the reason for that is, is there's not an unlimited number of visas for that particular family category. But family is one of the best ways to bring uh, you know, relatives here. Again, it's affordable, uh, not always the quickest. It depends on which subcategory you fall into, immediate relative or preference. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's, this is a lot of information. And I, I can tell that you are a master at what you do as uh, this, is, this is what you practice uh, every single day. Before I go to another one, another scenario that we see a lot here, and because you know I, I ran a, a real estate boutique uh, caters to foreign nationals and a corporation for quite a long time, and we have seen several scenarios that uh, I am willing to share that way can help the viewers. I will ask the people with us here if they have any questions um, to ask you please go ahead and ask him before we can uh, go on to the next question and uh, hopefully you'll get an answer today and on the spot yes so Mona real quick before we open it up to questions just a disclaimer I am an attorney so I always have to share the disclaimer right um, this is a public platform and yes. so if you question or share any personal information. I have no control over who sees it and where it goes. So just be conscientious of that, please, before you share any of your personal information. Yes. If they have general information, just they want to know, uh, please, by all means, go ahead and, and ask your questions. General questions are better, please. Yes. No general questions. Okay. They don't have questions. Now, here's something that I've noticed during my practice in real estate. A lot of a lot of uh, foreign nationals, they come here and they buy properties thinking that they will gain residency with that. And so often some people actually give the wrong, the wrong advice and they tell them, yeah, just go ahead and, and, and buy property. And because you have a, a tie to the United States, you will eventually receive your green card. And of course, you and I know that it does not happen that way. So if you can share with us, what can people do if they want to invest in real estate, especially real estate, if they want to invest in real estate, what would be their best option? So Mona, great, great question. Great topic, right? This is a common misconception. A lot of people believe that if they buy some form of property or assets in the United States, that that will somehow result in residency. And I think the confusion comes from uh, other countries' programs, because it is my understanding that other countries do have such a program where if you buy a home or an asset above a certain numerical amount, then that could result in some form of residency or visa. However, the U.S. does not have such program, okay? So investing in property, purchasing a home will not result in anything besides you owning that asset, and that's great. And so let's say you have a 10-year visit visa, for example, and you want to buy a vacation home in the U.S., you can absolutely do so. And so that when you and your family come to the U.S., you have somewhere to stay. You don't need to stay in a hotel. However, that home will not give you a green card. It does not even guarantee that your visa will be renewed after 10 years. So after mm -hmm. that 10 years, it expires and you go to renew, 
owning the home does not guarantee that it will be renewed. And so that is a risk you take as, as an investor, um, you know, without some form of permanent residency in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, any, any question, Eddie, Andrea, any question that you'd like to ask? Yeah, I'd like to ask a question. Uh, I'm actually in Australia at the moment. I'm actually married to an American citizen, and I did have a green card. However, I let my green card elapse. So that finished up in 2021. Now, since 2021, we've gone through the process again of reapplying for the I-130 petition for spousal visa. However, due to COVID and all sorts of other issues, it's been held up since 2019 that we initially applied it for. And we're still waiting after all this time for a response from USCIS. I have engaged a lawyer in Arizona to help support the case, but it seems as though we're going nowhere fast with this. And I have my family located in California at the moment. So what is your advice? What should I be doing or what are we not doing that's not feasible for my situation from what you've just, what I've just told you? Yes, thank you. Um, so your situation is a situation that we come across very often. Unfortunately, yeah. you're dealing with a federal agency that is overworked, uh, understaffed, and they have thousands of applications. Oftentimes, applications get lost in the shuffle or set aside. And so this does happen way too frequently, unfortunately. So the solution to this is, first, you want to submit inquiries. This is step one. With USCIS, the way to submit inquiries is online or through the 1-800 number listed on the receipt. These are the yeah. two methods to submit inquiries. Once you've yeah. exhausted inquiries, let's say you're getting nowhere with that, there's a few other options you can look into. Some people have had success with reaching out to their senator. So yes. whatever state, uh, your wife is the U.S. citizen, correct? Correct. So whatever state she was a resident of or is a resident of, she can contact the senator of that state and through their website, and they can oftentimes look into the situation for you and give you some uh, guidance or assistance or even speed it up, okay? Uh, another option is suing the government, and this is something we do fairly regularly. So mm-hmm. when a- The mandamus. Uh, yes, sir, yes. exactly. And so when a case is delayed and we are reaching out, we are submitting inquiries, we're calling USCIS, we're sending them inquiries online, they're ignoring us, they're not responding, time just keeps passing. At some point, an applicant may wish to force USCIS's hand and stop the nonsense. At that yeah. point, you decide to submit a federal lawsuit to a federal judge, and the federal judge will then give USCIS 60 days to respond. Right. Most okay. of the time. In my experience and the cases I handle, of course, these cases are vetted to make sure that they qualify. Most of the time in my cases, the response is very positive. USCIS happens to magically find the file that was missing. Yeah. And it gets approved or scheduled for an interview or whatever the next step that was supposed to happen that we'd been waiting on all of a sudden takes place. And then we can dismiss our lawsuit because we got the results that we wanted. And yeah. so this more aggressive approach, obviously, you want to first start with less aggressive approaches like the inquiries, maybe the senator. And once you've reached a point where uh, nothing seems to be working, then the mandamus is the final final route. Okay. Now, what you've just described to me, exactly what we've done. We've done the inquiries with USCIS. We've gone to our senator, I believe in California as well. 
and our lawyer has advised us to do the mandamus. Is there any disadvantage in going down the mandamus route? I personally do not believe so. Uh, it is okay. not allowed to USCIS to retaliate against you. So one of the questions my clients ask me all the time is if I sue USCIS, will they deny my application? Will they be upset with me that I sued them? And will they yeah. just deny my application? The answer is no, they can't do that. You know, they can't just indiscriminately deny an application because they feel like it or because they don't like you. Anytime they deny an application, they have to specify and give very detailed reasons why it is being denied, why you did not meet your burden. And if it is denied incorrectly, you, of course, have the ability to appeal. And so mm -hmm. it's not in their favor or interest to deny applications incorrectly because that will come back to bite them at some point. Um, so, you know, this is not a game. This is not a joke. We're dealing with federal judges here. Federal judges also don't like games. And so when the judge gives USCIS 60 days to respond, you know, typically response is, is favorable. And sometimes it's just at least movement. It's not necessarily a positive outcome, but at least you start to see movement in the case, which is ultimately yeah. what he wants. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much for that. You're very um, welcome. I do have a question, Yazin. It says, uh, do I understand it correctly? When you marry U.S. citizen, you still need to apply for a visa. So it depends. Uh, are you marrying the U.S. citizen? Are you already inside the U.S.? Are you marrying outside the U.S.? Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on your situation? Right. That was my question. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering. Um, I'm not so much into visas, and I'm here in Germany. And as far as I know, when you marry a German citizen and come from anywhere else in the world, you have the right to live here permanently in Germany. Um, and the question is like, um, when I live, for example, in India and I marry a German, I could come here, as I said, but what is, how is the situation then in the US? Yes, so let's look at two different scenarios, okay? So if you are outside the US, then your spouse can your U.S. citizen spouse can petition for you through an approach called consular processing. This is where the forms and documentation would be submitted to USCIS. Ultimately, once it's approved by USCIS, the case gets transferred to another agency called the National Visa Center. And after the National Visa Center, it gets transferred to the third agency, which is the U.S. Embassy. The beneficiary, the foreign national spouse, will attend an interview at the embassy in their home country. And if all goes well, if they pass the background checks, if they prove that the relationship is bona fide, is genuine, and everything meets muster, then the embassy will issue a temporary green card. It's actually a visa in your passport, but it essentially serves as a one-year temporary green card. This allows you to board a vessel, an airplane, whatever it is, and enter the United States. Now, upon entering, you will be mailed your green card, your actual physical permanent residency card. So that's one approach, assuming that the beneficiary is outside the U.S. Now, let's look at an alternative option. Let's say the beneficiary is already in the U.S. So let's say the foreign national beneficiary is a student in the U.S. And while they are working on their Ph.D., they meet the love of their life. And the love of their life happens to be a U.S. citizen. And so they decide to go to the courthouse and get married. Well, now the U.S. citizen does not want their foreign national spouse to leave even though their studies are almost completed and it's time for them to return. So in this situation, they file a process called adjustment of status. 
This process is internal inside the US so that the beneficiary does not need to leave. The beneficiary can just stay and transition from student straight to a marriage case. And during this time, while that case is pending, the beneficiary receives a work permit so that they can work. They receive a social security number so that they can file taxes. And they also receive a driver's license so that they can commute. And you wait until your marriage interview and then you attend your marriage interview inside the US together with your US citizen spouse. And if all goes well at the interview and you are approved, you receive your green card and you never need to leave the US at that point. So these are the two ways marriage cases work here in the US. Okay, thank you. Seems a little bit more dif different than, uh, than in Germany. <laughs> you know, I always tell people our immigration system is, is fairly complex and unfortunately mm -hmm. it's also antiquated. It's very old and outdated and it has not really been revamped in a long time. And so this is the system we have and what we're dealing with. It is a little bit tricky, uh, but you know, we make the best of it, I guess. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I, I think, again, just like uh, attorney, as I said, a disclaimer, this is being recorded. It will be released to the gen general public. So anything personal, you can uh, reach out to the attorney um, privately and he can discuss your situation. This is mainly an introduction to the United States immigration system and ways to come and live the American dreams. As far as I uh, I know, it is very friendly system. It is very, yes, it may be old, it may, may have hoops and so on and so forth, but it remains a efficient system where it allowed millions and millions and millions of of people to come and live the American dreams. And uh, I am a proof of it, just like attorney Yazin. I met the love of my life that we got married and here I am. <laughs> Never went back, uh, extremely friendly system. And uh, it allows uh, people to venture. It allows people to explore. It allows people to enjoy the freedom, to enjoy the lifestyle, to e enjoy what this country has to offer. And to me personally, it remains one of the best countries in the world to do just that, to realize your dreams. And there are still opportunities available for people who are ready to take advantage of it. Closing statements from Attorney Yazin, we had mentioned the title of this episode, The American Dream, Where Do I Start? Your final statement and closing remark, Yazin. Moda, first of all, thank you for having me here today with you. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you and your guests. As you mentioned, you know, we're so fortunate, we're so blessed to live in this country. It is truly an amazing place with a, an abundance of opportunities for those that seek it. You know, I mentioned our immigration system is difficult. It's a little bit outdated, but there is nonetheless uh, a plethora of options for people. So to kind of summarize it, our immigration system really can be looked at as a system that has three categories in it. The first category is family-based. So certain family members can bring other family members. The second category is employment and investor options. And we discussed those today. And the third and final category, which we did not get a chance to touch on today is humanitarian immigration. So categories such as asylum, DACA, TPS, uniting for Ukraine, et cetera, humanitarian parole, right? These are all uh, humanitarian options. And so all the main categories are covered. 
you know, we protect those that need protection. There's options for them to come here and seek a, a safe place to live. We also have the family program, which allows unification of family, which is essentially what immigration is really based on when it comes down to it. It's about keeping families together. And we also have uh, options for investors and employees for those who desire to work here or invest here. So most bases are covered with our immigration system, and there is an opportunity for just about everybody who's looking for one. And hopefully we get to see some more people from around the world and we can help as many people as we can. That's always our goal and objective, helping others achieve their American dream. Excellent, excellent. Where can they find you if they'd like to reach out to you, Yazin? Yes, so first of all, our website, abdinlaw.com. Uh, our phone number, it is a local phone number, 407-300-0003. And you can always send us an inquiry online as well through our website. If you have a question or want to reach out, there's a form you can fill. Send us an inquiry and we always respond within 24 hours. Excellent. As for me, if you are... Whatever you are in the world, we do this to help you. We do this to give you tools and tips to inspire you, to empower you, to uh, assist you in any way we can. We are here in the United States. We have helped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, whether they're investing in real estate here, whether they're trying to buy businesses and start their life, or whether they're trying to understand the system or how it works, we are here for you. You can reach out to me at Mona monalu.net or mona at worldprogroup.net with any question as it relates to real estate or culture, leadership, team performance, and profitability. Until then, stay safe and stay well. Bye-bye.